Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. And today we have a very special guest. We're here with Donna Corley. Donna was with Freddie Mac for close to three decades and now is a strategic advisor and has her own advisory company by the name of Guiding Star. How are you doing today, Donna? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me here, Oz. I'm so excited to have you on. I appreciate you taking a little bit of time for us. Um, I want to start here because the first thing that jumped out to me when we started talking and I was able to review your experience was you were with one company, a well-known company, a well-known brand for close to 30 years. And listen, that's not only uncommon nowadays, it's a complete outlier, right? Especially as we see things like the great resignation and we're seeing people, you know, a lot of times they're leaving for more money or they're, they're not being treated the way they want to at work. So having that level of tenure, that's not common. And so I wanted to ask you, what does it take, right, individually and for the company? Because it's got to be both sides, right? What does it take on both sides to have that not just survive, but thrive through that long of a tenure? No, a great question. It is. I feel very unique in that background at this point. So, you know, I will say individually, it was recognizing what was important to me and how to make sure I was getting it. And so I started getting itchy. And for me, I needed to be growing. I needed to be learning. I needed to be challenged with new things. I wasn't bashful for asking for it and then raising my hand and saying, hey, you know, I need something more. And it also meant that whoever I was speaking to then needed to be able to reciprocate and be able to say, all right, here, try this, try this. So it definitely was uh, a two-way street. I think the, the company also needs to have programs in place to really nurture their high performers and to be able to say, hey, this is how we can continue to help them grow, help them thrive, understand what they are looking for and and give them new opportunities. You know, in those 30 years, I had, I think it was over 12, maybe it was 15 jobs. And so it was quite a bit of change and progressing and moving. And so I never felt stagnant whatsoever during that. I love that. Listen, one of the things that I've talked about in the past is that I think the resume is an archaic artifact in a lot of ways. It does not tell the whole story. But I will say this. One thing that I've always looked at from either a recruiting lens or a hiring lens is when you see somebody progressing over course of time at one company, that's usually a really good sign, right? Now, I got to ask you a couple questions, follow-ups. First one is when you first got there, because it sounds like you got there right out of college, did you have any sense that I'm going to be here a really long time? Or was it just kind of playing it by year, year by year? Absolutely. Never would have imagined that. So I did. I started the day after I graduated from college. Like literally wasn't even 24 hours after I was handed my diploma. And I had been an international business major and minored in Russian. And I thought I was going to be going to uh, the former Soviet Union and starting businesses there. But it had just been the collapse in the Soviet Union and things were so volatile. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take this job here for a few years, learn a sector, and then I'll bring my knowledge overseas and help them get in mortgages in better shape over there. Yeah. 
30 years later. I have not been back to the Soviet Union since. But <laughs> That's what we call a successful career pivot. I love that. Great job by you on that. So I guess my follow-up question is, and listen, I got to talk to my research team. I didn't look this up, but there had to have been some level of regime changes at Freddie Mac over that time. And I know whenever there's regime changes, usually you're having maybe a different culture or definitely a different organizational structure or different priorities. And so I guess I'm just interested in that being adaptable, like being able to kind of, you know, navigate those waters. That's not for everybody. Was that something that was a big part of your ability to kind of sustain over that time and kind of thrive? Or was that maybe it was the culture was always the same the entire time you were there? What were the things, I guess, over that 30 years that were the same from the beginning to the end? I guess is my main question. Yeah, no, and the culture, it definitely evolved. And I would say even in different divisions of the company, the culture was different. And I worked in three different divisions during my tenure and was able to adapt to it. So being resilient was really understanding, all right, what is it going to take to thrive here? Is that something that I'm going to enjoy doing and those skills that I can, can flex? And so part of it is recognizing what's new, what's different. I think. I'll tell you one thing, I'll interject real quickly. One of the things that is kind of my philosophies on life is instead of complaining about the rules of the game, learn them and adapt to them, right? And so there's probably new rules at all times. If there's a new regime or a new manager, new leader, and if you're in 15 different roles, that means you had to have at least 15 different managers in that time, right? So yeah, I think it was actually 19 in the time span. And so I think two things happen. As number one, with change becomes opportunity. And so if you're willing to get off the sidelines and say, hey, you know, let me help. And you're given those opportunities. And so I found we had some a lot of controversy when we went through the great financial situation. We had an accounting issue. Like there was a lot of big events during my years there. And with each one, I ended up getting more and more responsibility. And so I kind of took advantage of a lot of chaos and turmoil and, and change. The other aspect was this to say, I didn't really recognize it at the time. But looking back now, I realized my brand was very consistent for 30 years. Right. I was a hard worker. I was someone that people enjoyed working with. I was the peacemaker. I was the folks that could help bring a compromise between different groups and yet focus on execution and get things done where at the end, everyone felt good about what they got done. Not that they got, you know, plowed over and, and whatnot. And so it made it easier for people to say, yeah, we want her on our team. And yeah, let's let's move her over here. Let's let's try her over here. <laughs> so uh, two things there that really stand out to me. This quote I think is a little Machiavellian, but it's it's certainly not in this instance. Chaos is a ladder. So when these tough things happen that a lot of people are thinking, "Whoa, is me," there can be opportunity there, right? And then I think the other thing that really stands out to me, what you just said, is translatable skills. So these are skills that play in all weather, in all times, in all markets, in all types of companies, right? Being reliable, being a hard worker, being a peacemaker, being somebody that can bring people together and influence. That's always going to play no matter who the CEO is, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what company you're in. So I think that is a big part of success. I'll wrap up here. I got to ask, I don't want to generalize. Mm -hmm. Do you have the same thing for breakfast every morning? <laughs> Or do you mix it up? Uh, I, I go back and forth between my two favorites. Okay. that's a, that, that, Listen, that's enough variety there. I just wanted to make sure. So we're taping this the week after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that happened this past weekend. Um, looks like things are starting to move in a positive direction there with the intervention from the government. I was reading about how they went without a risk officer there for close to a year before January. And of course, this person was highlighted as a part of a problem. And as I was reading this, 
I, I started to realize, no, I don't fully understand in a large financial institution what the scope of responsibility is of a chief risk officer. And also that there just must be an immense amount of pressure with this role. And so I see that you held this role for single family homes in Freddie Mac from 2014 to 2019. So I'd love if you could give our listeners a little bit of visibility and insight into what a chief risk officer does. And is, is that something that like you never sleep? Are you just constantly stressed out or how does that work? No, great, great, great question. And it was very important to me. So I'll, I'll say I, I always have to get that. Um, you never make good decisions on, on bad sleep. So uh, there is actually in the banking and financial world, there's what something called the three lines of defense when it has to do with risk. The first line means it's the business area. It's the people who were talking to your clients and you know negotiating deals and running the shop. and they are first and foremost primarily responsible for all the risks in the business, right? You can't be good at what you do if you're not thinking of the consequences if something goes sideways and handle it accordingly. But then there's also another group that is they call the second line of defense. And that is an independent risk organization that is kind of looking over the shoulder of the first line to challenge them and to say, well, have you thought of this? And have you thought of that? And what about this? And they're also a group that would create like, policies and procedures to make sure that there's a consistent approach that everyone in the company is using when they're thinking about new products or, you know, the financial risks and what things need to be disclosed and how to treat things. The third line ends up being an internal audit function as well that then looks over both what the first line and second line does. So then a lot of eyes and a lot of checking of complicate, the more complicated the business, the right, almost the more checks that, that you need. My role in particular was in the first line of the business. So I was the one who was saying, all right, all the different aspects of the business, do we really have our pulse on what's going on? And are we managing it? Everything from uh, credit risk to interest rate risk to operational risk, right? What if our systems go down? What in people risk? I mean, dealing with, you know, converting everything to COVID. Like, there are so many different risks added in the organization that I had to work across like, all 3,000 people to say, hey, do you have a pulse on what's going on for our business? And I led it in a way that says, we know what our business goals are. We know what we're trying to achieve. How can we say yes in a smart way, right? How can we get that done um, within the confines of not adding on tremendous amount of risk to the business? And so for me, I love that trade-off between that risk and reward and, and thinking of it as both sides of the coin, not, not just the one side. I love that. I love that. So a couple follow-ups from me. Is part of the role identifying risk or... At the time when you got in, are most of the risks known? And it's just about kind of supporting and maintaining and making sure none of those risks come through. Or are you also proactively looking for new technology innovations, new security innovations, new things that can impact customers? Was that a big part of the role? Absolutely. And so, you know, the risks that you know, well, that's easy. You can put the right checks in place and the controls in place to make sure that you're managing it and reporting on it. The biggest issues are the ones that you don't even understand or you don't know you haven't thought of yet. And so it's really important to even look to other industries and say, well, what risks are they seeing? What are they facing? And so everyone should look at what just happened with the banking institutions and saying, wow, all right, is there anything that is happening there? Is it applicable to, to my company? And if, every, if any regional bank or large bank is not sitting down on Monday and talking about 
could this be us? How could this be us? What what did they do wrong? I think that's been well detailed and well chronicled. It's amazing. The advent of of social media. Yes. You know, to, to have a situation now where like now instead of you know people like emailing or even talking to each other, it's it's not it's a wonderful life anymore. They didn't have Twitter and it's a wonderful life, right? So <laughs> it's just a it's a very different and unique situation. And again, there's new risks involved. There's new things that you can't plan for. Obviously, the the pandemic was in some ways a black swan event, was something that we couldn't all plan for. So yeah, I can see how the mind frame of kind of risk versus reward is 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 how you get through the day on that one. But again, it sounds like it's a a lot of pressure, but it sounds like in a lot of way it can be pretty rewarding too. So, and part of it is having an amazing team that sees their job as understanding yeah. and bringing that to light. And no one person can think of all the risks embedded in something. And so, having folks that feel like it's okay to raise your hand and say, "Wait a minute, there may be a problem here," and surface things, and you can't have an environment or a culture or a company and manage risk well if people are going to be hiding something that doesn't look good. <laughs> yep. I t- totally makes sense to me. Um, and, and listen, one last thing I'll ask as a follow-up there. Obviously in 2008, there was a big financial crisis. Home lending was a big part of that. Freddie Mac is in that space. How did the role change say pre-2006 from what you understand to when you took over in 2014? Was there just way more like controls in place? So like, how did the roles change after such a seismic event that impacted the country? I imagine it had to change at least to a degree. Yeah, it went probably up and down and, and back again to maybe to leveling off to a happy medium. So maybe it's more like a pendulum is probably the better example of Got one it. extreme to another. In the midst of the crisis, it was a batten down the hatches and, you know, it was much more of a say no to anything type environment and get a pulse on where, where things uh, where things sure. normalize a little yes. bit. Yes. And so when I came in in 2014, it was after that, maybe that frozen period, if you will, and it was like, all right, the shell shock of what we went through was now behind us. And so it turned into an environment of how do we learn from what went wrong and how could we be better and how can we get back to saying yes with the right framework, with the right controls. And so it was it was a pretty big culture transformation that I went through with the organization that you know, the past few years, they had been told, say no, don't take on any credit risk, and we can't go through what we just went through. And so it was important to allow folks to say yes again, but not lose sight of important independent thought of well, what risks make sense to take and which risks don't make sense to take that you should actually say no to. Yeah. I, a light bulb just went off for me as you were talking. It's, it's you know, to, to be almost three decades at any one company, part of it is knowing what you're walking into, the timing of what you're walking into, and can I be successful in this environment? So I think that really stands out. And again, I really appreciate the insights because that's things that I'm not sure our listeners know or I even knew. So I appreciate you giving us that insight. I want to ask you about Guiding Star Advisory. So we're talking about being a chief risk officer. I can tell you as an entrepreneur myself, there's few risks bigger than starting your own company. So I'm I'm interested to know what was kind of the impetus to this? Did you have like an inflection point or a moment where you said, this is where I want to do? And quite frankly, Guiding Star, as far as I understand it, is less on the financial side and more about coaching and, and working with others around, you know, taking the next step. So tell us a little bit about the organization and then why you decided to make the decision to go into this space. No, it's exactly right. It's it is a one person shop. So talk about one extreme to to another. And here it is about trying to help people recognize what is their true north and what is going to make them happy. How can they pursue that to get an environment where they will thrive? 
And for me, the inflection point was recognizing I was getting, I guess, maybe a bit burnt out, a bit antsy. I wasn't waking up for work and saying, I'm excited to jump out of bed and, and go into the office today. And for the first time, and that was almost the first time in 30 years. And so for any time I had run into that before, there were changes that I could make within Freddie that I say, hey, well, this new job opportunity, I can do more of what's going to make me happy and I can do a little bit less of what's driving me back. <laughs> and so I was able to kind of make those adjustments. And this was the first time that stepping back and realized, you know what, the things that I enjoyed the most, they really could go on without Freddie. And the things I was liking least, I'm like, no matter where I moved in the company, those were still going to be present. And so what I love the most is helping people. And I would lie, did so much mentoring and with coaching and really working to build out the culture and build out organizations and create strategic direction. And when a team is all cohesive and firing all together, like it's magical. And I love seeing that all come together. And so being in a role where I can focus and help people make that happen. Like, that's going to have me jumping out of bed every day. So it's worth giving it a shot. So that's, that's where I am today. I love it. I love it. I, 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 was, I had a conversation with an employee earlier today, and we have a book club here at MSH, and we're reading a book called Grit. And I've read it before, but there was a chapter on purpose. And one of the things that really called out to me in that chapter that really stood out to me was, ultimately, at the end of the day, people look at their work as they wanted to, to have a purpose is what gets you up in the morning for close to 30 years and feeling good about what you're doing. It's that purpose, right? But I think where people sometimes make a mistake is where they say, ah, recruiting is not my purpose or engineering is not my purpose or you know, trash sanitation is not my purpose. And that's actually not what it's about. It's about finding what are your core values, what are important to you, and then finding work that allows you to live those core values. So it's less about the output of your work a lot of the time. It's the helping others that translates to you opening your own advisory firm and doing that coaching that gives you purpose and sustainability long-term. Because the reality is, is that the ability to to sustain work and feel fulfilled with your work on the long-term, you have to have purpose. If it's about money, if it's about title, if it's about ego, if it's about making ends meet, that's not going to sustain you long-term. You've got to find that purpose. And so I was talking with one of our employees about, well, what are your core values, right? And how does your role play into that? And so I think you said very eloquently, even though this is completely different than what you were doing in, in at Freddie Mac, you were able to line up what you enjoyed about your work there and translate that into your own thing. And I think that's a really, really special thing. Any thoughts there? No, and that's exactly it. And so, hey, to be able to focus full time on something that gives you energy versus something that's draining your energy, I'm like that—that's Nirvana. So I can see the joy in your eyes and smile. So I'm I'm grateful for you that you're in a position. Because listen, for me, what I'm really passionate about is I want to transform and disrupt the hiring industry for the better for everybody involved. But also, I feel like people should all work somewhere that makes them feel fulfilled, right? Makes them happy. That doesn't mean it's always puppy dogs and lollipops, but having purpose in your work, it's so much time of what we spend in a given week with the team members that we work with that, I don't know, just going and, and, and punching a clock for me, it just, I feel bad for people who are in that situation. And I get why it happens and how it happens, but I want for everybody to feel good about what they're doing. So I'm really excited to hear that with your work. And I want to hear more about that as well. I do want to dive into hiring because obviously that's the point of higher learning, but also because being at a company for close to you know, 27 years and being in 15 different roles, I know you probably hired hundreds, if not thousands of people in terms of being involved in those processes. So we're going to start here. 
when you're hiring, whether it be for your team or for somebody else's team, and you're involved in the interview process, do you have an overarching hiring philosophy in terms of what you're looking for? You know, for me, it's first off recognizing what is the role itself on paper? And then what is the role, maybe the non-tangibles? And what is the culture and the environment and the dynamic? Recognizing where that group wants to go. I think all forms a much better, clearer picture that when you're then interviewing, you can say, all right, does this candidate have all of those elements? And so I look a lot at what are the skills of everyone else on the team? Is this someone that's going to be able to complement those skills and not just be yet another person who could, you know, be a carbon copy of, of other folks in the, in the organization? Fantastic. That is totally my philosophy as well. I, I think a lot of times what happened is people hire rock stars and they want rock stars and they want these great people and these great individual contributors, whatever it may be. And there's very little thought to thinking about what is my current team composition? What does my team lack? What would disrupt my team, right? What do we need to be the highest performing team we can be? What do we need to add to that behaviorally, capability-wise, competency-wise, whatever it may be? And so I think you're taking the exact right approach, right? If you look at your existing team and you want to be additive to that and not take away from that, really important to find things that complement, both from a behavior perspective and from a capability perspective. So I love that outlook. Do you, if I ask you for your most memorable interview ever, whether it was you interviewing for one of those 15 roles or whether it was you interviewing somebody else, you don't have to name names, but anything come to mind? You know, probably, it was probably really early on. I had been with the company only three years and it was just going to be my first switch in in areas. And I was going to be interviewing with someone who was, had a PhD, incredibly brilliant man. And he had the reputation of handing you a, a dry erase marker and you had to go to the board and show all the math and show everything behind your thinking. And I was like, oh, I remember going through the books and preparing and studying and, and getting ready for it. And I get in there and he's like, all right, I know you, I've heard you talk over the last few years. I've read all your writing. Like, you know this stuff. So it ended up being like a total more get to know you personally interview. And I'm like, I did all that work for nothing. So that's probably the one that I remember most, almost because what didn't happen versus- I love that, a little misdirection. And you know, he knows what his reputation is too, but you know, you got to give him credit for doing his prep work. And then he was able to build a report. And listen, something I totally agree with in terms of, if you feel like somebody has the capabilities you need, it's about, is there trust being able to be built here? Is this person going to fit with us? Are they going to fit with me and my preferences? And so it sounds like that's what that interview was. So that's awesome. I love that story. When you miss on somebody that you've hired, right? And we've all done it before, right? Are you able to look back and is there like a common theme on something you wish you would have done differently in the interview process? Or when you miss, how do you typically miss? You know, I think my miss has been more of it hiring someone based on what I know today. Thinking this is the role that I need now. And then in the next, let's even call it three years. But not necessarily thinking how how much more the, the role could change or evolve? And would this person be able to withstand that major transformation? And so it then meant that, all right, they were they were great for what they had, but then maybe not for what it was growing into. And so recognizing that another shift may be needed in a few years when a, a drastic 
because it is needed. That's a great call out. I've probably done 50 of these episodes. I don't know that I've heard somebody say that. I think that's a really astute point. I have some ideas on how to be mitigate that a little bit, but it's definitely an imperfect science. You know, if you look at like sports, right, when they draft a player, they're not drafting him for the 21 year old or who, whatever age they are. Right. They're saying, I see at 28, 29, what this person can be. And they project. And that's where we miss that projection is the hardest part. It's easy to hire a plug and play that you just need them to do a role and they've done it before and you drop them in, but it's that projection that can be really tough. So I really like that. Um, when it comes to candidate experience, right? I'm interested and it could be Freddie Mac. It could be anywhere else. Do you think that it's important? And what have you done in your career to try to give somebody an idea of like a realistic job preview of what to expect? Because as much as you want to hire them, they also are making a very big decision on where they're coming to work and who they're coming to work for. How do you try to give people insight and visibility into what to expect day one through, say, day, no, I don't know, 27 years in? Yeah, Henry. <laughs> I definitely couldn't have given a view of what the 27th year was <laughs> like. Uh, but, but I'd say... It, it is very important to give a very canned view of where the organization is. If it's in a period of transition, you need to be upfront or you know have a vision of where you're trying to go. It's sharing that vision. You want someone who's going in eyes wide open and is up for the challenges that you have in store, or is is excited to to tackle them. You try to sugarcoat things or hide it in the interview, and you could ultimately get the wrong person because that's not what they called for and or what they thought they were signing up for and don't really have the heart to to take that on. So it is very important to share share all those details. Be transparent. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, you hire smart people that can come up a learning curve quickly. It matters less that they have the exact technical skills that you're looking for. It is the, right? It is how they are going to how are they going to learn and how are they going to work with everybody else and how are they going to be able to help lead you through whatever it is that you're trying to do as an organization that truly matters most. Totally agree with you. I, I always would lean behavior. I think you can train uh, aptitude, but you can't train attitude, right? Behavioral skills and competencies are super important. I also think it depends on industry role, timing, all those different things. But I would always lean towards give me an exceptional person, right? That, that that seems to, to to thrive in any different type of situation rather than somebody that's got the great pedigree, the great resume, the great experience, and hope that that works out. From a projection perspective, it's easier to project behavior than it is anything else, just in terms of applying new learned skills and things like that. So totally line up with you on that. We always get to the end and we're always, you know, sometimes we're running out of time and we're like, uh, any questions, right? I think it's really important to have the candidate interview, obviously the hiring team as well. What are you looking for in that moment? Are you looking for a specific type of question? Are you looking for an approach? What's important to you? What, what do you like to hear from a candidate when they're asking questions about the role in the company? I do like them when they ask about the culture. And I like, because that's something that if you've done your homework and read things online or read things, you know, read the financials or whatever, you don't get the soft descriptors in the same sure. way. And, you know, I think it's important to ask everyone on the interview panel that type of question. And then are you getting a consistent answer or not? And the big warning signs and red flags if, if there's major difference in, in people's response. 100%. I think a lot of, like, especially if you're working with a recruiter, whether it be an agency or internal TA, and then you're moving into the hiring manager, and then you're talking to people on the team, Anybody who's interviewing needs to be validating consistency throughout that process as much as possible. And to your point, it's an absolute red flag when you're not getting that. And here's why. 
because they're handpicking who's interviewing, right? It's almost like giving a reference of somebody that's going to be like, actually, this person, I'm not sure about them, right? So if you can't get that right, you know that there's probably more skeletons in the closet. So I think I, one thing I would tell everybody on an interview panel is make sure there's consistency of definition of success of what you're looking for, but also why people should want to work here. What is our employee value proposition, right? Not be dishonest, of course, but make sure there's consistency in what you're saying, because that can be a humongous red flag for any candidate. So I'm interested in diving in a little bit outside of the hiring realm and learning a little bit more about what you're doing day to day right now. So what is the day in the life of a new entrepreneur with your own company, right? How much of it is coaching? How much of it is business development? How much of it is marketing websites or things like that? Like, Give us a little bit of a breakdown of where you spend your time right now. Yeah, right now it is... I would say it is a bit more of the marketing and trying to lay the foundation of things of, hey, this is what Guiding Star can do and what, what I can do and try to get the word out there. So starting back in January, I started uh, a YouTube channel where I'm just doing weekly quick clips that, and shorts as well that different tips that I had found helpful or fun stories from my almost 30 years at Freddie. And it's actually been a fun family exercise. So I work on the idea. My son, 17-year-old helps me with the content. And then my 14-year-old does the editing of the video. So it's become this whole family affair. So that has been uh, a good chunk of my turn. But again, just doing one a week to kind of get out their thoughts. And just by doing that, I've had people reach out to say, hey, you know, I'm interested in some coaching and I'm, I'm at a place in my career where I need some help. And, and so that just has kind of created, I guess, its own buzz, if you will, so that I can then respond to that inquiry rather than, you know, knocking on doors and, and trying to drum up business. So it's kind of happening a little bit more organically. Putting the kids to work. I love it. I got to get my 11-year-old in here and have her start sourcing for us. I think that's great work. It's teaching an ethic at a young age. I love it. So if somebody wants to go and find on YouTube, where would they go? So yeah, it's uh, Don Corley is my YouTube channel. D-O-N? D-O-N-N-A. C-O-R-L-E-Y. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so I usually ask people what they're working on that they're juiced about right now, but I'll ask this in a different frame. What's the ideal customer for you? What type of situation would they be in? You'd be an excellent coach. Well, how would you position that? I would say someone who is working to get to the, the C-suite level wants to understand right, what it takes to get there and how they can stay true to themselves in that journey. I love that. And it's not necessarily easy, but it is possible. Okay. I'm taking notes here. I'm going to get some free advice. So what do you think are the key qualities of a, of a great CEO? Whoa, fantastic question. I think the role of an amazing CEO is to be able to amplify the talents of the team. And so you got to first know what are the talents of the team, know what drives them, and how can you play that role of, you know, of the magnifier and, and the true leading people through their strengths. And so having a culture where folks can speak their mind and share different ideas and share you know, creative opportunities, especially as an entrepreneur, that you need innovative thoughts and need to constantly be evolving. And so need that culture where the leaders have trust in you and vice versa, that they're going to be able to 
evolve and, and help the company go in whichever direction you want to take it. <laughs> All right, we're going to test that right now. Jackie, how am I doing amplifying the talents of our company? Be, give me real feedback. We need it. Uh, I think you're doing very well. Wow. I thank you. The culture of recognition. Culture of recognition and celebration. As well as accountability that you lead by example so others follow. Okay, now you're not now you're making it sound like I set this up. No, I love it, Donna. That's great advice. Thank you, Jackie, for the feedback. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to end here with this, okay? If you could offer one bit of career advice to people early in their career that maybe you didn't know at that same point of your career that you know now, what would it be? Oh, I actually recently did a little video snippet on this, which is a great piece of advice that I had received, which was you need to always stay outside of your comfort zone, but in your element. Ooh, explain. And so it means, all right, push yourself. Don't get too comfortable. Don't get too drenched. You can't just keep doing the same thing over and over. You're, you're always learning and growing and sharper when you're outside your comfort zone. You know, for me to become an artist, well, that's not my own. And so instead, it's what skills do I have where I really shine? And how do I know that I'm going to be able to shine in that new spot that's outside that comfort zone? So for, you know, for my big career moves, it was saying I moved from, you know, capital markets to a risk to running a whole business and very different aspects that kept me out of my comfort zone, but yet it relied on my element, which was fostering a great team and leveraging the organization and asking thoughtful questions and using my analytical strengths. And so I could still shine in what I am good at, but just doing it in new ways. So I think that's fantastic. And here's why, because you usually hear the first part of that, right? I got a coffee cup that says your comfort zone will kill you. But what we never hear is Got to be in your element too, right? Just because like, you know, you'll be uncomfortable swimming with sharks, but if you can't swim, that's probably a bad idea, right? So I think that's really good advice and something that I hope our listeners take to heart. I know that's uh, something that I will keep in mind as well. Um, Don, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of insight into your new company, your experience at Freddie Mac, and then of course, you know, all the different things around risk. So thanks so much. And we'll talk again soon. Excellent. Thank you, Ans. All right, Donna. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.